The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nash. Today, we're speaking with Jay Brandis from the University of Georgia's Department of Marine Sciences, where he's a professor and a scientist in chemical oceanography. His research has taken him all over the world, to the mountainous Andes, down to the Amazon basin, and halfway around the world to China. Recently, Jay began a two-year study on microplastics and has already made some startling discoveries. Jay, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Well, thank you. I appreciate being here. So, Jay, what was it that began your interest in marine chemistry? When I was growing up uh, back in you know, the late 60s, early 70s, I got really hooked on oceanography through a Jacques Cousteau's show. And I remember watching his show and just being absolutely just fascinated about the oceans. And... I'm one of those people that kind of made their minds up really early that I, that's what I wanted to do is be an oceanographer. And I didn't really know what being an oceanographer really meant. It just meant being on the ocean and doing cool things. So it wasn't until I went to uh, my undergraduate institution, which is Humboldt State University in Northern California. And it's one of the few places in the country at that time that had a uh, undergraduate uh, major in oceanography. Oceanography is divided up into four main disciplines. It's chemistry, physics, biology, and geology. And they make you take classes in each one of those areas uh, before you actually get to do the good stuff in oceanography. So I did those, and I found out that of those areas, I really liked chemistry, and I really liked understanding the chemistry of the oceans and just thinking in ways that made sense from a chemical perspective. So that kind of set the direction for my education and uh, how I've uh, ended up where I'm at. That's fantastic. And I don't think there's a better time to be in marine chemistry right now because of the state of our ocean. So what you're doing is just so needed in the world. Um, What motivated you to actually study microplastics? Well, I ended up getting uh, involved in research in a completely different field. I ended up studying uh, mostly nitrogen chemistry and trying to understand where nitrogen comes from and goes to in the oceans and how it's cycled and its role in uh, pollution and eutrophication and those kind of issues. In doing this type of work, one of the things that I got involved with was looking at the composition of materials in marine sediments and stuff that ends up getting sequestered for very long periods of time. It's kind of the end game for organic matter and nutrients in in the oceans. And as part of this, I was using a technique that allowed me to look at the composition of organic matter and and nutrients in sediments on really, really tiny scales. These are uh, using an instrument called an X-ray microscope, which uh, basically it's kind of like having Superman's eyes Uh, It allows you to look at the interior of bacteria, for example, and figure out what uh, kind of molecules are in there. It has that kind of resolution. And I was looking at some sediments from the Gulf of Mexico, way out in the ocean, 1,800 meters down. And these sediments had these weird particles in them. 
every once in a while I would see these this really strange type of organic matter in there, and I started talking to the other scientists at these uh, X-ray microscopes and saying, well, what do you think this is? And they said, well, take a look and see, uh, you know, we have some spectra of all sorts of different standard materials. And one of the materials that showed up as an exact match was Teflon. So there were these pieces of Teflon that were, you know, 1,800 meters down, like well over a mile down in the ocean. And I started thinking about how do they get there? Where, where is this coming from? And how big a problem is this that I can see this in, a, in what should be a pretty pristine environment uh, this is well away from any oil spills or any uh, drilling activity. So that's kind of what got me into it in the first place. When I uh, started here at Skidaway in, in 2005, I started talking to some of the scientists around here who were into marine debris and cleanup activities. And so one of the first ideas that we had was basically to go around and ask all the wonderful people who are doing beach surveys and beach cleanups and say, okay, how much plastic are you finding in your cleanups. And this isn't an easy answer to come by because most of the time people are interested in just getting the stuff off the beach, pack it into bags, throw it in dumpsters and so on. But we went through and made some assumptions and figured out that, you know, there were many metric tons of plastics that were washing up on Georgia's beaches. I guess, you know, when I was thinking about where to go next with this, I started thinking back to this issue of little plastics and sediments and thought, well, you know, when I look at the literature, microplastics is becoming a, a big area of concern, both for the public and for scientists. And if you look at the literature that's out there, oh, about 10 years ago, microplastics really started to uh, expand as an area of research, an area of public concern. Uh, it came in, and when we got into the microbeads uh, issues with cosmetics, it really took off. And I was able to convince uh, one of the local agencies in Georgia, uh, Georgia Sea Grant, which is uh, interested in sort of issues that are important to Georgia, Georgia coastal waters and so on. We convinced them to fund us for a couple of years to look at the issue of microplastics in Georgia fish and shrimp and oysters and so on, and basically do an assessment because nobody really knew what kind of amounts of microplastics there were in the environment here. They didn't know how big the problem was. Uh, and the first thing that you want to do is kind of get a handle on on that particular issue. What's the, what's the extent of the problem? Right. That's our food source. So it's pretty important to know what's what's going in those, right? Yep. Um, I have a question though. You, you mentioned Teflon. I know the Teflon is what lines our pots and pans, but I'm assuming that the Teflon that's so deep down in the ocean doesn't come from our pots and pans. Do you have any idea where that Teflon is coming from? No, actually, I don't. I mean, when you look at these materials, there's really very little that gives away a particular source of this of this stuff. Teflon happens to be one of the most dense plastics out there. So instead of floating on the surface like you think of most plastics doing, this actually sinks. It acts like a mineral rather than like something that's going to float. Right. How it got out there and you know why it was out there, I have no idea. It just it was. And that's such a huge problem when when we're trying to find out, you know, what's causing this problem and how to fix it is is where it's all coming from. Yeah, exactly. So much of the time, when you look at materials under the microscope that you've extracted, you can tell that you know, it looks like a thread or it looks like a piece of fishing line. But a lot of times you really have nothing more to go on than that. There are instruments that can tell you exactly what kind of plastic it is. 
But again, it doesn't have like a little label on it that says this is from Patagonia Fleece or whatever. So when you started conducting your studies off the coast of Georgia, what was it that you found so far? It's a two-year study, I, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, and we're, we're about two-thirds of the way through it. So I'll tell you what we were thinking going in. When we were, going, uh, when we were starting this project in 2016, uh, we thought we were going to find what are the microplastics that we were going to find were primarily going to be pieces of larger plastics, like pieces of bags, little beads, uh, you know, parts from styrofoam cups and things like that. that. That was kind of our preconceived notion going in. And some of that was based upon some preliminary work that we had done offshore where we had been uh, dragging nets through the water and looking at what we were finding. We were finding a lot of pieces of plastic bags off the coast. But when we actually started looking at what was inside the guts of organisms, we weren't finding so much of those. What we were finding were microthreads, microfibers. So instead of, you know, you think about like a, a chunk of plastic, these are long, thin, you know, as I, as I described, threads or fibers. Uh, and we were finding those being the vast majority of microplastics that were being ingested by coastal organisms. So are they coming from washing machines and entering our waters that way? Well, if you look at the literature, again, these things don't have labels on them, but that's the likely source. One of the things that um, we were not funded initially to do through Sea Grant was to look at anything other than organisms. They were really interested in knowing what the contamination issue was. Uh, and Sea Grant's a relatively small program. But my group began to, to really feel that we needed to understand the environment around these animals uh, and understand what kind of level of pollution there was. So there's a, through a series of kind of happy uh, coincidences, there was a student up at uh, up in Athens, Georgia, at main campus at the University of Georgia, uh, Jacob Mabry. And he had been working with another person, Jenna Jambeck, who is very well known in the uh, marine debris field. And he had contacted me looking for a summer internship. Uh, he happens to live down here in the area, and everything kind of fit together. So we had him apply for one of our, uh, our local summer internships for undergrads. And I set him loose this summer, basically, uh, for two months. He went out and collected water samples, filtered them, processed them to extract out the microplastics, and then looked at them under a microscope and counted them. We were trying to be extremely uh, conservative in terms of identifying microplastics, so we only identified those things that were clearly plastic, and then we would double-check them with uh, what is called a melt test, where you take your test plastic fiber or your fiber and put it on a hot surface, and plastics will melt, whereas if it's a, a piece of a Spartina grass or some other natural organic material, it won't. It'll shrivel up and char. So we did those kind of tests. And we had him basically go up and down the coast collecting samples to try to understand the distribution of microplastics and their abundances. And that's the study that uh, generated the, the one trillion microplastic or microparticle fibers uh, in Georgia coastal waters. It was based on the kind of data that he collected. Is there anything that we can do sort of as zero wasters and people who want to save the oceans to prevent microfibers from entering our waterways? Well, it's a difficult problem. Um, what I've done in my own personal life is try to steer away from fabrics and materials that have plastics as their composition. It's hard because, you know, most of the things that we really love, like, you know, fleece jackets, for example, have tons of plastic material in there. 
uh, composition. But the more we can kind of steer away from that, steer away from microfiber uh, you know, sheets and pillowcases and that sort of stuff, that's the better thing. You know, the sort of the first thing we can try to do. Ultimately, I think what's going to need to happen is that manufacturers of washing machines are going to need to put in filters just like we have with our dryers, where they capture these fibers right at the point where they're being generated. Every time you wash your clothes, you're generating uh, some level of, of fibers that are going into the environment. We've all experienced the process of buying a nice, uh, soft garment like a hoodie or something and then after you've washed it five or ten times it's no longer soft and that's because you're losing a lot of these microfibers in the wash that ultimately is where we're going i have a feeling in the next few years there's going to be some sort of retrofitable filter that you can put on the back of your washer and uh, collect these uh, materials before they get out in the environment the other thing that's going to have to happen is there's going to be more attention that's going to have to be paid by the uh, wastewater treatment plants. Right now, if you look at the literature, uh, the types of numbers that you get from microfibers leaving wastewater treatment plants are all over the place. And it's unclear uh, which type of treatment system really is the most effective at removing microfibers. But that, again, is an area that industry is interested in or that that, that area is interested in. Um, and will have to be addressed. Uh, ultimately, you're going to have to capture this stuff before it gets into the environment because once it's in the environment, it's basically impossible to remove. Uh, you can't clean it up like beach debris. You don't even see it when you're out there. Absolutely. Now, I've heard that these microfibers can act like a sponge for pollutants. Is that is that true or is it something that we should be worried about? Well, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the literature, a few people have, have taken this up. And I was just looking at a study that came out in 2014 this morning where uh, some scientists uh, basically took model plastic microplastics and microfibers and fed them to uh, cod and then tried to see if they were getting BPAs and other pollutants off of these. Uh, and they, they couldn't find evidence for that in cod. Um, but there are other organisms where it does seem to be a problem. I've seen an issue, uh, there's, there's a, been some papers on study of oysters taking up microplastics, and it may not be the compounds that are associated with the microplastics, maybe the microplastics themselves that are causing problems, but it slows their growth rate, it skews their male-female ratios of, of, in, of oysters, and uh, changes the reproduction rates within them. I guess the simple answer is we don't know. There's evidence on both sides. There have been some studies uh, done to try to see if there can be desorption of model compound, model organic compounds uh, into different organisms in there. Again, some studies that suggest it can happen. There's some studies like the COD study I was talking about that specifically looked at BPAs that said it doesn't happen. Uh, it's very much likely that it's going to be on a sort of organism type by organism type basis, depending on how they digest their food, uh, how long their food sits in their guts, uh, th those sorts of questions. And one of the things, I'm a chemist, so I, I am not an expert in that area at all. I just sort of read through the literature and try to uh, follow as best as I can, but that's not an area that I'm really good at trying to conduct research on my own. Right. Do you see a partnership perhaps in the future for a future project um, for yourself to work with a toxicologist and, um, and try to figure out these answers with the pollutants and, and the BPAs? 
Yeah, yeah. It just all all depends. We don't have a toxicologist here at uh, Skidaway, but I'm always looking around for uh, people to work with, and and uh, you know that's the sort of thing that is is being done. It's actually I know there are efforts in South Carolina and Florida to look at some of these questions, but it is a huge problem. So basically, what I'm learning is that it it still might be okay to eat seafood. Oh, yeah. I mean, and one thing I've, I've been trying to tell people is that this is not uh, a matter where, let's say, it's not like the, uh, the lead contamination waters of Flint. I'm absolutely convinced that there's no primary health issue with microplastics, one of which is that all of the organisms that we've been collecting have been healthy. And unlike with the larger debris that you find killing seabirds and turtles, um, it doesn't seem to accumulate in their guts. We have yet to find any organism that has more than a couple of microfibers in their gut content. So uh, they don't seem to retain them. It doesn't seem to kill them. Now, that doesn't mean that some of them aren't experiencing uh, different effects because you're obviously sampling just a small portion of the environment and you're sampling organisms that are healthy enough to be swimming around in the water column. In terms of uh, pollutants, Again, the literature out there doesn't seem to suggest that it's such it, that it's a really large effect. If it was a really large effect, you would see almost every study coming out and saying, yeah, this is an effect. So I don't see that as an issue at all. The one area that I guess I've been trying to push people towards is if you are to eat seafood, it's better to eat it, again, if it's not been farm-raised, if it's not been raised in one of these environments where it's everything at all highly concentrated and they're given artificial food and so on because those are the types of highly polluted areas that you're going to end up with a maximal exposure on pollutants on plastics on other materials if you look at georgia's microplastics distributions they're really heavily concentrated around savannah uh, and around a couple of the other cities once you get away from those areas the concentrations drop way down and if we make the assumption that these organisms are not specifically targeting microplastics to eat, then their contamination is likely to be a function of that environmental abundance. And so large areas of Georgia's coast are going to be just fine. Um, and even the highest concentration areas here are likely to be okay. Well, that's but, good news for Georgia. And that's good news for yeah. seafood lovers as well. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your work on Tybee Island? Well, Tybee Island is basically our most popular beach community in, in Georgia. It's located uh, outside of Savannah, and they get huge crowds, just millions of people every year. They, of course, are one of the big uh, areas where there's a lot of beach cleanup effects. Uh, one of the things that I've been involved with, we have a, a group here called uh, Georgia Marine Extension, or Marex, and they're really heavily involved in education of teachers, education of kids. Uh, they have a ton of marine science camps and they have a ton of marine uh, teacher workshops. One of the uh, workshops that uh, I'm involved with, uh, we go out and go to Tybee Island, it's really nice uh, beachfront on the uh, Atlantic uh, community, and we collect beach sand samples from an area of the beach that, at least a visual eye, doesn't have any pollution. I mean, if you look at it, it's like nice beach sand. There's no styrofoam cups. There's no bags. There's no garbage sitting around. We take these beach samples back to the lab here, and we extract out the microplastics from those beach sands. 
and then have the teachers look at them and count them under a microscope, just like we do, uh, just like we did this last summer with Jacob. And that really opens their eyes up to the idea that there's pollution everywhere, even if you can't see it. And then we also talk about, okay, why is it important to understand this? And to my mind, the most important thing to understand about this is this is the kind of pollution scale that really uh, affects most organisms out there in the environment. You think about it, you know, a fish, a normal-sized fish is not going to eat a giant styrofoam cup or even a large piece of styrofoam cup. But they're very likely to eat a microfiber if they happen to be filtering water through their uh, gill riggers. So, you know, in this way, we try to bring this stuff to the students. They can bring it back to their uh, students. We've also made up kits so that they can go out in their own environments and sample from streams and rivers and do the same type of experiment in a classroom. That's awesome. That's really a really good way to get people involved. And it's really the next generation, I think, that's going to sort of take this over for us and, and hopefully make the oceans a cleaner, a cleaner place. I know that Obama signed the Microbead Free Waters Act in 2015. And then there was another regulation act, I think way back in the 70s. If you are, are anybody that uh, does anything on a boat offshore, there are all sorts of regulations, although they only extend out a few miles, basically, for, for control. And it's a major problem for pollution in the oceans in terms of uh, pollution coming from boats. Because once you get outside the economic zones of, of countries, it's a wild west out there. There's nobody that's going to be pulling up to you. There's no Coast Guard vessels that are pulling up and say, don't dump that bag of trash off the side of your ship and so on. Uh, but it is a major problem. When I talk to, to people about plastics, I like to talk about the microbeads uh, thing because it's an interesting, to me, kind of a sociopolitical story or lesson. Because, uh, you know, the first thing I ask is, you know, would you expect, given the sort of the politics of the U.S. Congress, uh, you know, the last seven years, would you expect them to be very friendly towards banning a pollutant? And, you know, most people would say, no, they're very cautious about this sort of thing. And indeed, they seem to be trying to roll back some of the bans on different types of pollutants. Uh, but yet, microbeads, cosmetic microbeads, were banned, and it went through incredibly quickly. If you look at the history of this, the problem really came up around 2012 or so, 2013, really uh, started a game momentum with uh, measurements of large-scale microbead contamination in New York lakes and in California and Canada, and were banned by a couple of states within pretty short order. Their manufacturing use was banned in, in uh, New York and in California. And then the U.S. Congress took this up and banned them as well. And the question that comes up or comes up to me is, why did this happen? Why was this so fast? And the answer to me is that everything was pushing in the right direction for this. The manufacturers that were using these microbeads uh, did not have a competitive advantage to using these things. They were natural products that were just as inexpensive to, to manufacture and use. They were doing these primarily as a kind of a marketing gimmick. It's like, okay, here we have this high-tech bead that we can use in our facial products. Well, soon as that material became a liability, they were like, okay, we will go back to the other stuff and we will be good corporate citizens. Just go ahead and ban them and we will follow your ban. We will not lobby against it. We will not uh, try to fight against it in any way. And so it went you know, right through. Everybody was more than happy to show that they were good environmental stewards on this issue. 
um, because there was no economic hit to it. Right. But if you compare that with microfibers, it's a whole different story. And it's the thing that really worries me and kind of depresses me sometimes when I think about it. Microfibers are, are so pervasive in our clothing, in our, in our fabrics, in our textiles, uh, in our world. And there isn't a replacement for them that gives you the same properties that, that is as inexpensive as, uh, you know, stretchy, however you want to put it, you know, plasticky clothing that has a lot of polymers in it has properties that people like. You think about, you know, spandex running gear that has a ton of plastics built into it. A lot of our clothing now is heavily polyester uh, based. So there isn't going to be that easy, you know, rollback of their use because they're essentially so ingrained in our culture and our use. You look at a simple, what I think of as a simple issue, like plastic bags, for example. And I'll give you an example here from Georgia. The um, city of Tybee on Tybee Island tried to ban the use of plastic bags because they see them on the beach all the time. It's a terrible problem and they're really sick and tired of it. So they thought, okay, we're going to ban the use of plastic bags in our stores on our island. We can't do it in Georgia, but we can do it on our island. They had lobbyists from the plastic bag community come to their city council meetings and lobby against this. They had the state of Georgia legislature pass a ban preventing local municipalities from passing these kinds of laws. There was that level of pushback just on a simple, you know, relatively narrowly defined pollution issue like plastic bags. That's the sort of thing that depresses me because it's a huge fight. It was a plastic bag ban ban, essentially. It was a ban on bans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically they said, no, you cannot. And it wasn't just plastic bag. It was any, any, anything related to that. But it was really directed at Tybee Island. And they won? Well, no. I mean, the, the legislature passed this law, so they can't do it. Oh, yeah. Tybee could not ban plastic bags. They were not allowed. That seems so crazy to me. So no wonder it comes as a surprise that the Microbead uh, Free Waters Act passed so quickly when in other other areas we're having these bans yeah. on the bans. There's a grocery store in Victoria up in British Columbia that just doesn't have bags. And the first time you go there, it's a bit of a shock because you have to carry all your groceries out or find a box. But um, you get used to it really quickly. You can really get along without plastic bags. So that is something that I find really unfortunate. And it, it seems to be a struggle all over the U.S. trying to ban those plastic bags. I'll, I'll say I had the same experience in Paris. I was there with my daughter this summer. We went into one of the local stores there. And they did not have any bags available. Uh, you could buy substantial bags that could be reused, but they had nothing else. So we ended up just carrying our stuff out. That was just fine. But uh, here in the United States, we have a ways to go. People feel their rights are being abused if, you know, you ban their company sales or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, there's a history of that. I just, I just find it amusing that, you know, you have people that claim to support freedom and, and local uh, community power to do things, but if they do something that uh, isn't approved of at a higher level, they're very happy to come and kind of stomp on that uh, particular freedom. But you know, these are these are long-term fights that we're going to have to uh, deal with. And part of my feeling of my role in all this is just simply to provide information. Say, okay, two years ago we had no idea what sort of microplastic contamination was taking place in uh, Georgia waters. Now we have at least a better idea of it. It's up to people in the whole community to decide where we're going to go from here. 
Absolutely. Is there a lot of funding for this type of work? Is this something that people are, are interested in funding? Uh, well, from my perspective, no. Mainly because the agencies that I, I typically get my mon- money from uh, either state or federal agencies, so National Science Foundation, Georgia Sea Grant, for example, the agencies that have traditionally funded pollution research are the EPA and NOAA. And both of those agencies have been really hard hit in terms of their funding for, uh, for research. They're, they're kind of hunkered down. Their missions seem to be changing a bit. And unfortunately, it's hard to find funding for these things. Uh, there are still a few places here and there that you can, you can look for funding. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it is just sort of ad hoc. You try to find a little pot of money here to fund an intern or you find a little uh, program that uh, we're willing to look at this sort of uh, issue. You know, that's sort of where we're at in this, in this particular field, in this particular state. Other states are uh, a little different. I know uh, Florida, New York, South Carolina, they both have much larger, for example, sea grant programs and other environmental programs, and larger scale studies are being done there. Is there anything that zero wasters such as myself can do in terms of supporting scientists like you in, in putting together this important research um, or things that we can do in our everyday life other than buying more organic clothing? Um, is there anything you could recommend to us going forward that we can sort of help you or help other scientists or help this whole sort of movement? Well, all I can say is that every voice counts. If people feel like they will uh, contact their their uh, leaders and say, you know, these are issues that are important to us, please try to uh, support them, support funding uh, research in that area or in, in environmental area in general. Recognize that it is important for us to keep doing this type of work and that all, you know, even if you have one answer, it isn't the final answer, that research is a continuing process. And basically just look at their lives and, and try to uh, live them, as, as you say, with as zero uh, production of waste as they can. That was Jay Brandis from the University of Georgia's Getaway Institute of Oceanography in Savannah. I had heard of these bag band bands before, but it's sad to hear it's happening on Tybee Island too. The biggest step you can take as a beginner zero waster is to stop accepting plastic bags. This means bringing your own bags or carrying out single items in your arms. If you're only buying one small thing at a store, you can probably carry it without a plastic bag. When it comes to microplastics, they're not only being found in Georgia, they're everywhere. They've recently been found in shellfish off the coast of British Columbia, and per square kilometer in the Great Lakes, there can be as much as 460,000 microplastic particles. That's per square kilometer. In March of 2016, the House of Commons added microbeads to the list of toxic substances under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, which is a big step forward. But the sale of microbeads in Canada isn't prohibited yet. And so for now, it's up to us as consumers to avoid toothpaste, shampoo, face wash, or any other product containing microbeads. Microbeads go directly into aquatic systems because they can't be filtered out. So if you brush your teeth with toothpaste that has microbeads, it goes right down your sink and through a water filtration system and basically out into our rivers or our lakes or our oceans. Eliminating plastic shopping bags and microbeads from our everyday life is a huge step on the countdown to zero waste. 
this week on my personal countdown to zero waste, I purchased toothpaste in my own jar and filled up little jars for us to each use every day. This means my family has removed six tubes of toothpaste from landfill per year. By the time my son turns 50, if he continues to use zero waste toothpaste, he will have saved over 250 toothpaste tubes from going to landfill. Today I learned there are 1 trillion microfibers and microplastic particles in Georgia's coastal waters. I wonder what that means for New York, Toronto, London, Hong Kong, and the list goes on. So far, it's not a health crisis, so it seems we still have a chance to clean up this pollution by choosing better clothing, better bathroom products, and by pushing for better filter regulation. It also sounds like more toxicology studies are needed in this area. One thing's for certain, I'm going to think twice before I buy my next piece of clothing. Thank you for joining us. I'm still working on the geothermal episode, but until then, I have an upcoming conversation with a couple who spent six months hiking the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico all the way to Canada, and they're going to talk zero waste with us next time on the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.